It felt weird. It protects you from COVID-19, which is a bad virus. Vaccination, it just makes you feel secure. I'm worried I am going to get it still. I miss not having to wear a mask. It's not going to be forever. What we know about COVID seems to be ever evolving, especially when it comes to our kids. With changes to protocols, updates on vaccines, and revised masking mandates, it can be a lot to wrap your head around. Today, we're discussing what researchers are finding out about how kids are handling the disease, what the long-term symptoms are, and what prevention strategies make sense for kids. Welcome to On the Pandemic. I'm Mary Marchetta O'Dowd. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Larry Kleinman, pediatrician and population health researcher at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. Hi, Larry. Welcome back. Good morning, Mary. It's nice to be here. Thank you. So let's just start with the big picture. What is the headline about how kids are doing right now relative to the impact on the, with the pandemic? I think the headline is nuanced. Kids are surviving the pandemic, but they're struggling as well. Tell me more about how they're struggling. What we know is that children are much less likely to get seriously ill or die than adults. That's not because it's safe for children, but because this is such a dangerous disease for adults. And, if and we, also, and also, we do know that there have been a good number of children who have both been hospitalized and died from COVID. Um, yes. It's just relative to the numbers we've seen in adults, it seems small. That's correct. And if, if we took the numbers in isolation and said we've got something that is making millions of children sick, putting thousands of children in the hospital and killing hundreds of children, and it's preventable, we would be up in arms if we weren't doing something about it. And also if it was 2019. Yes, that's correct. If it wasn't a political uh, atmosphere, a political response to a health issue in this country, a politicized response to a health issue. Well, even more than that, in, in retrospect, right? Like we think, now we think in terms of these much bigger numbers that we're used to in terms of illness and death. And before the pandemic, we really, you know, if there were only a handful of cases of a pediatric illness, there was a, a, a very big response. And so I, I often remind people, if this, if these numbers were the numbers in, you know, say 2000, 2001, uh, 2011, people would be reacting very differently. But because of our new learned experience of the pandemic, it just doesn't seem as big anymore. I think that's a very important point. We are living amidst numbers that were unimaginable. We used to look at the 1918 flu pandemic and it was seen as the epitome of what bad could be, but something that would never happen. And now we're living it. And so then um, we, have, we have lost sight of the meaning uh, of each individual case. The forest is, is making us um, forget what the experience of the trees are, of each individual who is suffering loss. And children, of course, are suffering loss as parents, grandparents, and other peoples in their lives are dying. That's one thing. 
and then they're suffering loss as a result of um, of illness and and uh, and that's another. And then, of course, their life experience has been altered in ways uh, that can be challenging. At the yeah. same time, regarding that last bit, bit, we know that children are incredibly resilient. And if we can, at some point, approach normalcy, they will benefit, recover, and catch up with many of those things that they have missed. So I, I'm more worried about the impact of the illness at the moment. Um, but that also, for, for some children, can, can uh, also represent um, isolation or loneliness as, a, as a, um, a factor as well. So it's very complicated. That's why the headline, it's hard to put in a single direction, much as in the spring, when we, last spring, when we loosened masking restrictions, children were among the ones who really suffered that there's now some momentum and we, we see that masking restrictions are being loosened even in schools or masking requirements are being loosened in schools um, in the tri-state area uh, that children will again bear a large brunt of the consequences of that. Okay, that's a lot. That's Let's it. unpack some of these things a little bit more. Um, congratulations, I know you were awarded a, a grant from the National Institute of Health to look at some of the long-term effects of COVID infection in children. And some people call that long COVID. Um, can you talk a little bit about that work? Um, and you know, why are we doing this? How many people um, who get COVID get these long-term symptoms and what do they look like? Sure. So thank you for that. We, we are very fortunate. We have now two NIH grants, one of which is looking at which children are more likely to get sick in the short term, the acute COVID, and then uh, who, and, uh, uh, who gets long-term effects, which may, or delayed effects, because that also includes this um, multi-system inflammatory syndrome of children, or MISC, which typically occurs about a month after infection. And then long COVID are persistent symptoms or symptoms that result over time. I, I think we are still trying to figure out uh, how many and who gets it. I've seen estimates that range from a little under 10% of infected children to as many as 47%. And then of course there are uh, there are children who are infected who we don't know are infected, so that would lower the percentages some because it's an unseen part of the denominator uh, uh, of risk. But um, there are substantial numbers of children in any case who have long-term symptoms. Sometimes uh, this can be in the form of exercise intolerance. So uh, high school athletes who uh, can't walk around the block uh, so it can be pretty profound or it can be more mild. Uh, you can also have uh, brain fog, uh, forgetfulness, lack of concentration. This is an ill-defined um, uh, situation, but one of those, it's kind of like, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. If your, your mind and your brain and your thinking isn't quite right, that falls into the brain fog category. Um, we're trying to characterize that further with our research. Um, it can be uh, headaches, 
Um, there are any, uh, some, some kids have uh, musculoskeletal uh, issues. There, there are just a lot of manifestations. And of course, we don't know exactly what's attributable to COVID, what's coincidental in terms of the time of onset, but not related to the COVID. And that's why this work is so important. One, so we can count how frequently it actually happens. Two, we can describe what it looks like. Three, we can assess how much of it is due directly to COVID infection and how much not. Keep in mind too, that children may bear the psychological uh, impacts of uh, either being sick or having been sick or having seen someone around them be sick or in the, the most extreme suffer a loss uh, of someone who dies from the illness. And so there's the potential that there's post-traumatic stress that's a part of that as well. And we've just submitted a supplement to this grant. We don't know if it's funded or not, where we would like to look at the extent to which that contributes. Larry, let me ask you, let me ask you, there's been a lot of um, publications recently about, for adults, an increased risk of diabetes um, post-COVID. Is this something you're looking at for kids as well? It it is something we're looking at. I, I have heard anecdotal reports of diabetes. Um, I haven't seen numbers in kids that convince me that it's there, but neither am am I uh, sanguine that it's not. It will be a part of what we assess. And so far, based on what you see out there, does vaccination help reduce the risk from getting these long-term COVID symptoms? I mean, I've, I've read that it helps with Miss C, but what about some of these other things? Do we know that? We don't know that, but we have good reason to suspect it. Okay, so let's go back to some of your earlier comments about these sort of constantly evolving um, situations and challenges. You know, we've been at this now for two years and, um, you know, this last surge in the Omicron variant seems to have been significantly different than some of the prior ones. Part of that, I think, was because of the way we were managing through the um, surge, less shutting down, more potentially mask wearing or other types of prevention strategies. There were a lot more vaccines available, for example, but rather than shutting down, we maintained operations in society. We kept things going. Kids stayed in school. Some some schools shut down for a short period, but not too long. Um, And it almost felt to me as a parent of three kids in school that we were moving a little bit more towards managing through this like a flu season than what we had seen with the prior surges of COVID. And, um, you know, one of the concerns that you have said, and I share because I have a three-year-old is that, you know, we, most of us have the choice to be a little bit protected from the severity of illness through vaccination except for those kids that are zero to five because there's no vaccine available to them. But you know, what do you think in terms of this most recent surge in Omicron? How is it different? I'll tell you, I know a lot more people who got COVID, even some for a second time in this last surge than I did in the other two. And I think that description of a lot more getting it reflects our experience in many ways. Um, the Omicron variant was clearly more contagious, which made it more likely that folks would get it. 
even with uh, some protective behaviors. Um, there, I've used before, I don't remember if I mentioned it last time I was here, uh, a, a guy named James Reason created something he called the Swiss cheese model when looking at safety events. So um, uh, failures in, in, in um, protection in industrial accidents or patient safety or other things. And um, the idea behind the Swiss cheese theory is no defense is perfect, but if you line up a bunch of layers of Swiss cheese, unless the holes line up, one of them will protect it. And I think, so we took a few of the layers of the Swiss cheese away this time, plus it was better able to, to jiggle through when the holes weren't quite in alignment, and therefore we got uh, many more infections. Now, the good news is many people who got it were vaccinated, therefore they didn't get as sick. The Omicron variant seemed to be a little bit less likely to cause some of the severe illness, but still we saw lots of hospitalizations, lots of deaths among the unvaccinated and a lot of children in the hospital and some of whom died, including locally. So, um, when you have the sheer numbers of people getting infected who got infected, you're going to have bad outcomes. And to me, um, it was a good news and bad news situation. The good news was in the, the volume of numbers of people who were vaccinated and suffered serious harm from, from Omicron was way down despite our living through it. But the bad news is there are a lot of people who did suffer severe harm because this was a contagious illness. And of course, the unvaccinated are also more likely to get sick in the first place, so therefore more likely to spread it. And that's a, that's a part of the, the challenge with this too, um, is it multiplied very quickly. Um, I, I think that uh, it suggests that moving forward, we will need to have some level of a layered response and some level of a measured response. It's not binary, shut everything down or not shut everything down. But neither is it an all clear. And I'm afraid that a lot of the pressure and what we're seeing from a policy point of view is as if there's been an all clear. That puts us at risk and particularly puts children at risk. So one of the other things you said earlier on was that you were more concerned about their physical health, the physical health implications of the disease than some of the other sort of social and emotional um, isolation elements. I have to say that sometimes I'm with you and sometimes I'm not so sure. Um, I, I feel like the, the um, social and emotional um, you know, impacts on my kids and some of the kids that I've seen are affecting their physical health. So I'm not, I, I feel like so. it's not, you know, it's totally separated and that for some kids with the right support systems in place, you're right. They are resilient. That doesn't mean this isn't difficult, but you know, we can work our way back, but not everybody has the resources to really get back. And so, you know, some of the research that I've seen shows that there's been a doubling in the pre prevalence of depression and anxiety in, for kids since before the pandemic. And that seems 
remarkable and very concerning. And, and I want to get your sense on how, how real do you think this is? And will you be looking at these types of effects in your research as well? So thank you, Mary. That's, it, I, I agree with your observations to start with. I, I think that unpacking um, what I said uh, is important because of the things that you raised there. So there is um, there are levels of anxiety and depression that may result from the fact that kids see their parents having to respond to something that is out of control, right? That has nothing specific to do with any response. So that's one piece of this. Then there are children who are, um, for whatever reason, by their nature or experience, more at risk for depression, for anxiety, for having uh, uh, some, some form of behavioral or mental uh, health, negative mental health outcome. And they, and so they may be pushed over from okay to not okay by either this broad thing or some of the specifics. So I think that's all real. I think on average, children will get through this fine, but there is a substantial proportion who are struggling with that. The question then becomes, where does one achieve a balance and how does one mitigate against these kinds of, um, of risks versus mitigating against the physical risks? And that is really something, I don't think we know exactly the balance point for that. So in terms of the increased depression and anxiety that we're seeing in children, is there a role for schools to play in either screening or helping to support kids? I think there are things schools can do. I think um, screening can be helpful. The concern about screening is when you have what is fundamentally a low risk population and you use a screen, a positive screen is less likely to mean a positive condition. So if there's a way to identify kids who's, um, who there are, is either parent reported or teacher reported concerns, maybe a slightly filtered screening rather than universal screening might be more accurate and more helpful. I think there also are tools that might be uh, useful for children in general. And I'm thinking here, uh, teaching um, mindfulness exercises or simple guided meditations. Yoga is another. These are things that are life skills that can help to calm the mind and may be enough to deal with at least the first level. Not, that's not going to take care of kids who have depression, but kids whose mood is tending towards depressed, whose anxiety levels are a bit up. It creates a sense of control and calm. 
And there is very good evidence, um, longstanding in adults and emerging in children, that mindfulness as a practice can be very helpful. And uh, so I think that might be the kind of thing that could be introduced into curriculums. And it can be done at uh, pretty much all ages in the school setting. My first grader loves yoga and his teacher um, has incorporated it into the classroom. And I can say, I think it's, he still has his outbursts here at home, but it certainly is improving. Um, so let's just talk about, you know, I really liked your Swiss cheese analogy. And we have a few different flavors of Swiss right now in terms of how we are um, trying to add prevention components to um, the pandemic. Let's talk about masks. You've brought them up a few times and we are living in a country where depending on where you live and what um, the current environment is like relative to cases, you could be experiencing a very different kind of rule relative to mask wearing inside, outside, in school, um, at the playground, a lot of different rules. And, you know, people, I think their heads are spinning a little bit, frankly, in terms of um, does it help and when to wear it? And I think you've already said that it helps. And I think there's a lot of evidence on that. But What's your rule of thumb about, you know, when to wear a mask and especially for kids? Yeah. Well, I think as someone who, um, uh, who, who spends time around children under five and therefore unvaccinated children, uh, I haven't, for example, eaten indoors in a restaurant. I guess that's not entirely true. I did once, um, at five o'clock in a very large restaurant when they closed the outdoor and I was, we were shuffled in. But, uh, and that was in, in, at the point of the low in the spring last year, spring, early summer. So, uh, but, but I don't eat out. I don't go where people, I know there are gonna be large numbers of unmasked people. And I wear a mask and often a, a, a surgical mask on top of an N95 when I'm around people or if I'm in the office setting. So that, that's my personal practice. I agree the recommendations have been head spinning and I think they have been insufficiently sensitive to the realities of children and people who are around children. So I think many of the recommendations that we've seen make sense if one considers the adult population. I, I think that we still need to protect children. Um, adolescents and younger children the, uh, get or don't get vaccination because of either the availability of the vaccine or their parents' decision, right? So to my mind, there's a communitarian responsibility to try to help to protect them. And that's where the mask wearing comes in. I think indoors masks are essential. Now that we know that the virus spreads uh, as an aerosol, one way to think about it and, and I have to attribute this to Sanjay Gupta, whom I heard say this for the first time more than a year ago, is um, think about if you had a cigarette smoker in the room, if you would smell their cigarette smoke, you might be exposed to the, the virus. So it's not enough to be six feet away. It's not, social distancing helps, 
But like I, I like the Swiss cheese model suggests, each of these are imperfect methods. And um, I mean, a hazmat suit maybe gets closer to a perfect method. But short of that, um, we're But not a practical with, method. Certainly not, not for kindergartners. <laughs> no, or, or for any of us, really. So, so it's a question of how do we reduce but not eliminate risk? Masks are helpful. Good quality masks are helpful. A mask that is worn and that fits well is better than a mask that's not worn. So for kids, dinosaurs, pandas, flowers, colors, happy things that mean something to the kids make it more likely that they'll be worn. Teachers and adults around them may be the same thing. So Larry, last question. What's some good news out there that you want people to know about? I think the, there's a lot of good news. One, this will end. I hate wearing a mask. I did not, I, I was annoyed by it initially. Then I got used to it. And now I'm just tired of it. But I also sometimes am tired of wearing a seatbelt. And you know what? I click my seatbelt every time I go in the car, even though sometimes I don't want to. And I think if we can think of things that way, we can be optimistic knowing this is not forever, or maybe it's something we use situationally in the future when there's an outbreak or maybe even a flu outbreak in the future, then it's a tool that can serve us. That's one thing. Secondly, vaccines are coming for young kids. One way or another, we'll get, we'll get it right. Third, there are a lot of people working very hard to try to figure out how best to address this developing therapeutics. Um, and uh, fourth, that the, the pandemic will in one manner or another burn itself out and we will develop a new normal that is in a better place than we are right now. We are, I think on the backside of it, we, we may have hiccups along the way, but we are, um, we, we have gotten through it. And if we can come together to do it together with one another, I think we can all feel better as we get there. Thanks, Larry. Um, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Mary. I'm delighted to be here with you and delighted to have been asked. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On the Pandemic. This is Mary O'Dowd, Executive Director of Health Systems and Population Health Integration for Rutgers University. For more information on how Rutgers is meeting the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic, please visit coronavirus.rutgers.edu.